Welcome everybody, this is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor, I read a book this week. I watched a movie. Yes, we are continuing our Harry Potter series. This is part two. We are picking up right where we left off. The first book has just come out, 1997, and the film series is on the horizon. There's interest for a cinematic version of this thing. So if you have not listened to part one, that covers kind of the genesis of the idea going into J.K. Rowling's uh, life and everything about how this came about. So if you haven't listened to that, go ahead and go back to part one, or if you're more interested in the in the film series and how that came to be, uh, welcome. Here, Here we, we go. <laughs> we start with a guy named David Heyman, who you probably have never heard of in your Ever. life. <laughs> yeah, before, be- other than Harry Potter, I didn't know anything about him. But he is the crux of all of this. British. His father was a producer. His mother was an actress. Mm. His godparents were also actors and actresses. Mm-hmm. He's grown up in this world. He got his art history degree from Harvard in 1983. Ooh. So that's how he ends up in America. He started okay. as a PA on film sets, worked his way up to a creative executive at Warner Brothers. Really? So he knows the Warner Brothers world, but then he goes back to England to start his own production company. Hmm. At this point, 1997, he's 36 years old. Interesting. So he's returned to London. He's looking for a children's book to adapt. So he has that in his mind. But That's what he wants point, to do. What gives him the gumption to think he can go after one of the most wild-selling pieces of literature on the shelf right now? The thing about it is, it's not that wild-selling. The it book not? had just come out. Just come remember, out. five hundred oh, copies. Oh, you know, okay. not oh, that big. Okay. Definitely not big internationally. Like Scholastic hadn't even bought it to gotcha, be the big gotcha, thing gotcha. So worldwide. He's but he, really just looking for it at the right moment. Mm-hmm. He had planned to produce a movie based on a novel called The Ogre Downstairs by Diana Wynne-Jones, children's fantasy kind of thing. That fell through. Mm. His assistant was the one that read Harry Potter and pushed it to him. Said, hey, this is really cool. Check it out. He's like, well, that's a weird title. (laughs) Philosophers. Philosophers. (laughs) But loves it. So now he's like, well, we got to get in touch with this author. Let's lock it down. Yeah, yeah. So he cultivates a relationship with J.K. Rowling. This is 1998, after the sequel comes out, because oh, now it's getting okay. bigger. Yeah, now it's starting and she's to blow up. But it, it must be nice for her, before the, really the, the fandom really begins, mm-hmm. to get somebody in the film world a real confidant, maybe. Yeah. You know, she, she's not a film person. This has got to be one of the first people that are really coming to her. And if he's really trying to make a relationship with her, That must speak volumes to her once she sees the interest in the material that, well, well, I'm going to go back to the guy who was into it before anybody else Mm -hmm. was. Yeah, so that's why he's the first person we're talking about and the figurehead of all of this. But funny that his assistant, we'll see time and time again, it's the person below or it's a kid or somebody else (laughs) who tells the other person who then becomes who we know as is famous for this. Yeah. So he... He gets Warner Brothers in on it. They optioned the first four books for a million pounds. Part of the race to getting this made and some of the complications that we don't think about this, it's not getting any younger. Books are still going to come out. We forget that. None of this was set in stone. This was not a guaranteed success. This is right. not mine. Oh, the gold is here. We just got to mine it. It's right. like nobody right. even knew that this was going to be good. Yeah. So just for some historical context, The Phantom Menace came out in 1999, right. the next year. There was concern of big budget sequels, creative control, all of the stuff they're about to dive headfirst right. into right. because they saw, oh my God, this <laughs> is not good. You know, that was not. <laughs> this now, is a though it's storm kind of a- <laughs> we are entering here, boys. <laughs> right. 
like I said, it was a big bet that this would become a franchise. They thought, oh, this is going to create film jobs in England. It's mm-hmm. going to reignite tourism. It's going to like, it's it ca- has the chance. potential to do all this stuff. But the big thing, you can't just make eight sequential films, like decide from number one, oh, we're going to make. We're going to make eight. They have to be successful, each of them on their own. Yeah, each audience has mm-hmm. to like each individual film. Yeah. And if you look oh, at you the- will never get to the eighth one. That's why all of these reboots over the last 15 years, you get one, maybe two, and they plan like four <laughs> or five or yeah. 10. It's ridiculous. They've all fallen on their faces because each one could not stand on its own as a just a full, compelling piece. Right. So this is what David Heyman is having to deal with when he's getting Warner Brothers to sign the deal. I have a quote from the head of Warner Brothers, and he said, these books have a terrific following in Great Britain. So he's still not even bought in. It hasn't hit that international crazy yeah, cult yeah, status. Yeah, it's only been a British two books. thing right now. Yeah. Now, he's got it, at least. J.K. Rowling's on board. The one thing that he first needs to do is to get a writer. And so the writer for mostly all of these, which we'll explain that when we get into the other movies. Yeah, I'm very interested in this. Uh, Steve Clovis? How does he get to write all of them, except for the one, uh, except for number five? How does he get to write all of them? Because they exchange directors, there's producers in and out the door, as we'll get into. But this guy uh, with David Heyman and uh, J.K. Rowling and the cast, he's right there lockstep with everybody. And I think that's pretty impressive for a writer. Writers get rewritten and, and discredited and shoved <laughs> off and paid off and all that kind of stuff constantly in Hollywood. So it is impressive to me that one guy gets... Seven of the eight movies. Yeah. And he is the only credited screenwriter he, on them. Yeah. That, that's that's staggering. Steve Clovis, his story, went to UCLA from California, dropped out when he wasn't admitted to the film school during his third year. Ooh. Oh. So he then, but he's still in the area. He becomes an unpaid intern for a Hollywood agent and wrote a screenplay called Swings, mm. which was never made, mm-hmm. but it did get him the attention and get him the clout yeah. to, he pitched a movie called Racing with the Moon, which came out in 1984, starred Sean Penn and Nick Cage, wow. big actors at the wow. time. But he realized like, oh, I wrote this. It wasn't really what I intended. Like he wanted to direct. That's That was his thing. He's like, I want to direct. Okay. So he's like, I'm only going to do it if I can direct it. So then he wrote and directed another movie called The Fabulous Baker Boys, which came out in 1989, stars Jeff and Bo Bridges, and got four Academy Award nominations. Oh my gosh. One of these, it made me realize as I looked into this stuff, like there's a lot of people that get the nominations, but if you're not the one that wins... Or in the public eye, everybody forgets about it immediately. But this was big for the time, for him especially, up and coming. So then he did another writer-director thing in 1993. That did very poorly, got a lot of guff for it. So Mm. then he ended up not writing for three years. Oh, ouch. Yeah. At a certain point, though, he needed to support his family. (laughs) He's like, I got to get back to this. So he's like, I'm only going to direct something if it's my original thing. So the only thing that he's going to write is adaptations of stuff. So he adapts this novel Wonder Boys from the late 90s, and it got nominated for an Oscar for screenplay. Wow. So he's the guy. Oh, he's like, oh he this guy can yeah. adapt. Yeah. And he's winning screenplays. Yeah. For he was already <laughs> nominated a bunch of times for some other, you know, obviously talented. Here he is again, a, a screenwriting nomination. Maybe yeah. uh, this is a solid guy. Based on a book. So then now, this is happening at the end of the 90s. It's 1999. We're back in our timeline. Yep. Warner Brothers has this list of books that they bought that they need somebody to adapt. <laughs> so he looks at it. He's like, well, whatever. I'll look at it. Sees Harry Potter. Oh, what a weird title. <laughs> Reads it. Connects with it. He's like, let me call this guy Heyman. I want to be on this Warner yeah. Brothers. I want to be the guy to adapt this thing. So oh, that's how cool. he gets in on it. Wow. 
The question then becomes, though, can Clovis and Rowling work together? Right, 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 right. Yeah, what does she think of him? It's funny because I'll post a link to an interview, but they were both scared to meet each other <laughs> at the outset. Both writers being like, I don't want to destroy this baby. <laughs> On Rowling's side, she's like, I hope this guy is, I'm probably going to hate him. Yeah. Some Hollywood schmuck he's gonna is going to ruin it. tear it all apart. And he's like, I love this thing. I don't want to mess it up. I hope she's not mad at me. You yeah. know, like, we're really. So that's where the meeting of the minds comes in. There's a quote from J.K. Rowling in this. She said, the first time I met him, he said to me, you know who my favorite character is? And I thought, you're going to say Ron. I know you're going to say Ron. But he said Hermione, and I just kind of melted. And then he said, we ended up spending the day together just talking. We hit it off. And so there is an immediate kinship between them. And that's why it seems like they were able to work for almost a decade together to make this happen. Just based on what character spoke to you. you And and, and taking her by surprise, thinking, oh, he's going to go for Ron. That's kind of the offshoot. I mean, Harry, nah. But people can identify with it. He's a male, that kind of thing. So... (laughs) It's funny that he goes, Hermione, and that catches her eye. She mm-hmm. goes, huh? Whoa, let me talk to you. And yeah. then off off to the races, man. And because it, you could tell he's so empathetic, and that, you know, we'll get into that as he's developing these things. Like He really has an eye and an ear for what everybody mm-hmm. needs in the script. Mm-hmm. And he's able to, I mean, it's crazy that he could have all of those things just as much as her, as well as, it's not his idea. He's having to go to her <laughs> yeah. constantly. Yeah. What a weird pen pal. Yeah. I mean, she I mean they were in contact constantly over Constant the phone, bet, yeah. over, you know, over email, everything, random like there's dragon's blood in this story. What are the different uses for it? Like he has to become as versed in the mythology. I saw something she's... where he was like a kind of seeing if he could call her bluff on some things, just being like, oh, you know, there's 10 uses for (laughs) Dragon's Blood or whatever. But thinking that the writer just said, oh, that'll be fun. You know, that'll be fun. There are 10 uses for it. But what are they really? And so poses that quickly (laughs) to her. It's like, well, so what are the uses? And boom, she just has them off the tip of her tongue. And so he was impressed just right there. There was no faking it. There was no just like uh, shadows and and mist here. It was, she knew, (laughs) you know, it was right there. She had the answer. And because they have... She hasn't written them all yet. He has to come to her for a resource because he can't be like, well, if we made this character jealous, it's like, well, but he's not going to be jealous because this person needs to be jealous. Like basic stuff. He has to go to her to know. So they do have to have a mutual respect and extremely strong talking every single day working relationship. So few. They got the writer. (laughs) They got the rights. Now, this whole time, they need a director. Uh So it's uh the year 2000. Once I say this, you'll go, oh, I bet. But it kind of took me by surprise that how far this went along. I found Steven Spielberg was in negotiations to do this, to mm-hmm. do the very first one. They were months into this process, and he eventually pulled out. I think AI and World of Worlds is on the horizon there. I think AI is what AI he's came out doing. the same year. And, and yeah. he's crunched right there because it became a strange thing of there's not really a slot here. But he definitely, if nobody else did, he saw some dollar signs. He definitely knew that this, uh, he's Steven Spielberg. If nobody else did, and I bet nobody else did, he's saying now after the fact, oh yeah, this was going to be big. And I believe it now, seeing how far they actually went into negotiations to get him onto this. And then I started thinking about, okay, so how mystical and magical the first movie is. Can you imagine what it would have felt with that extra 10% Spielberg on it? Mm -hmm. That would have been insane. But I don't know how different it really would have 
been in a, in a lot of ways too when i look at it that way so yeah i thought it was crazy that steven spielberg actually really got that close to doing it but they went through a few uh, other directors some of note uh, jonathan demi he was the director of silence of the lambs in philadelphia <laughs> huge and not you know children's not children's but obviously making renowned films but right. he's never done a, you know an adventure children's right. film exactly very interesting. Another one on the list, Terry Gilliam. This was actually J.K. Rowling's uh, number one pick, mm -hmm. which I thought was kind of bold. Well, he's uh, British also, so that's that, what uh -huh, factors uh -huh. in. Yeah. Uh, and then Rob Reiner was another uh, another name thrown into the mix, which I thought kind of made some sense. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a lot of sense in terms what has of he the, done? the family. Uh, Rob Reiner has uh, done uh, Stand By Me. That's a huge, obviously, a, a child's classic. The Princess Bride, When Harry oh, Met Sally, right. A yeah. Few Good Men. That's different, but <laughs> a, a different type of filmmaking altogether. Mm -hmm. So he's on the list. And when I look at that list, I go, man, he might could have knocked this out of the park, too. Mm -hmm. uh, but ultimately, they do go with Chris Columbus. And Not Christopher Columbus. <laughs> I always see that. I love that his, his production company is 1492. <laughs> <laughs> he leans into it. I thought that was beautiful when I read that. But they went with Chris Columbus eventually because he had done Home Alone and Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh. And that seemed to be the most appropriate out of what they seen, uh, had seen from the filmmakers on the list the one that was most appropriate thematically for it. It was the most family. It was the most child-friendly with still having something that could grab uh, adults in there. That's definitely more in line with the thematics of Harry Potter. And like we talked about before, I had seen he had become a hardcore Potterphile the previous year thanks to his daughter. Again, another kid oh, coming man. into the mix. So he knew there the material. Again, yeah. He did a two-hour pitch to Warner Brothers explaining the different tonality of the muggle world and the wizard world and all of his oh, aesthetic choices as well. But I just thought it was great, again, how it's like, here's a kid, or like we talked about in the J.K. Rowling episode with the publisher. The reason the publisher was into it was because the kid read the, the first yeah, chapter and yeah. was like, hey, you should get the yeah. rest of this. I mean, um, the child influence here and pushing what is and isn't is really, really interesting. That thread you're pulling on here. Yeah. I want to keep that alive. <laughs> and just keep in mind, dear audience, like, cool, they got the director, but remember, they didn't know what even they were doing. Like, picking this was such a big deal because they're like, are we going to do, she says she's going to make seven books. What if it only ends up being four? Are we going to combine two, you know, two yeah. books and make one yeah. movie? Is it going to be three films? Because trilogies are big. Like, they really don't know. Where is this all going? <laughs> <laughs> right. She hasn't written it. Yeah. So now we've got that part of the team assembled. They need a cast. And we had talked about how one of her stipulations was it has to be done in Britain. Mm -hmm. The cast has mm -hmm. to be British because I don't want Haley Joel Osment doing a <laughs> faux Brit. You know, we're not just going to get American child stars yeah, at the time yeah. and make them sound bad and not have it be anything yeah. that I want. So that was part of it. But it wasn't quite set in stone. The so Hollywood version of it. Yeah. <laughs> Top officials from the British Film Commission flew to the US to make a case for Warner Brothers and being like, look, this has to be this way. We'll give you assistance with locations. We'll give you sound stages. We're going to revamp some of our child labor laws whoa, to be more whoa. accommodating for things on set in assurance that like, if you do decide to do this, you're gonna spend money in the UK. You're not just gonna ship everything over and then right, ship it back. Like right. it's gotta be here. Now we're here in the spring summer of 2000. They're gonna shoot in September of this year. <sighs> This is a massive seven-month process to try and get this cast before September starts. A few of the main people, Robbie Coltrane as Hagrid, 
he said, quote, they phoned and said, you're playing Hagrid and we're having no arguments about it. <laughs> that was her first role. That was what JK wanted. Yeah. They were like, she's like, it's got to be him. Yeah. And he was like, cool. He I'm, was one yeah. of the only people that she was really insistent yeah. on. She and, was pretty open, it seemed to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, seeing just, but he was just the one that she's like, it's got to be him. It's and funny. Yeah. She's right. <laughs> <laughs> he said he was already a fan of the books after reading them to his son. Oh, again, another again, there kid oh, influencing the adult. This is crazy, and it makes sense once you know who else is involved. Robin Williams had called Chris Columbus. Yeah. If you remember, he had done Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. Because he wanted to be Hagrid in the film. But oh, Chris Columbus, man. that was kind of like the first and last straw, because he's like, if the British rule applies to Robin, then it's definitely going to be applied to everyone. And if we turn him down first, then there's no way we can get other people who are yeah. American yeah. or otherwise to be in yeah. this film. God, that's a tough call. That's hard. But honestly, I like Hagrid as he was, man. Yeah. I mean, and it was just like I said, it would have uh, yeah. opened the doors to yeah. any old. It would have been exactly what she was fearing. A nightmare. It would have right. just, just been a big argument for doing that, for and doing tough, the Hollywood version. Tough to turn down Robin Williams after working with him. Oh, that's got to hurt. Oh, that's got to be. Oh. <laughs> but he did it. He stuck to his guns. Yeah. Good so, for him. Good for him. And that, honestly, Hagrid is perfect. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Richard Harris as the first Dumbledore, he was going to turn it down. Really? Um, he was like, I don't like the idea of being forced to do four or five films or God mm, knows what I'm getting yeah, into again. Yeah, well, gamble for every... <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I winked at Taylor across the... <laughs> but uh, at this time, his granddaughter was the one who panicked and was like, you've got to do it. There it, it is. <laughs> and so he said, okay. And it was funny because he had said in an interview, he was like, I used to get maybe 12 fan letters a year because I'm at the pinnacle of my decline as an actor. You know, (laughs) he said, but as soon as it was announced that I was doing Dumbledore, he was like thousands and thousands, like stacks of letters coming in. Oh, my gosh. So it reinvigorated him until the end. Oh, man. Alan Rickman as Snape. It's got my heart. Tim Roth was going to be Snape. He had gotten the role. Interesting. Okay, that could have been interesting. They had figured out his schedule with other films. It was a whole puzzle Rubik's Cube to get it to happen, but then he ended up turning it down because it was just too complicated Mm -hmm. because he did 2001's Planet of the Apes. Right. The Tim Burton thing. Yes, yes. And then even when Rickman got it, he was going to give up after the first two films. What? He called the character, quote, an unchanging costume. And if you look at it, it does seem that way. But... Joe Rowling oh, called no, no, him, no, yeah, gave him yeah, the ends yeah, of yeah. the character, and then he was like, oh, it makes total sense oh, now. Yeah. She knows what it's going to be book seven, but oh, it's crazy. Man. Even after the second film, he's like, I'm out. I can't. This is stupid. Oh, my gosh. Now, okay. Maybe speaking out of turn here, but the Snape <laughs> character, I think, is my favorite character. Uh, before we got on mic, I'm like, I'm glad I didn't watch these when I was a kid. It wasn't for me. I wouldn't have respected it. Now I can respect it. Now I can go back. Looking at it through the Snape character, I'm seeing how even Alan Rickman is like, this is the same. I can't keep just keep doing this. You know, the, the cloak is cool, yeah. but what else is there? Says he's going to give up. And it, and it takes JK to pull him aside, to pull him on an ear to the shoulder and go, hey, hold on. Hold on, you are the linchpin for this entire thing. Mm -hmm. Just wait, just please wait. And, and, And thank God he did. Yeah, amazing. Now we see, even as they're cobbling together this ragtag crew of British and Irish actors, it's like, 
they're all still in flux and confused and don't know what this is going to be. We're at July of 2000. They've been doing thousands and thousands of casting calls for the kids. Yeah. There's, this yeah. whole school is populated oh by kids, God. but specifically who the main people are going to be. July, they're shooting in September. Heyman doesn't have Harry Potter. Chris Columbus doesn't have Harry Potter. Uh, Interesting, though, because- How many boy, How many just calls to Warner Brothers do we have <laughs> Harry Potter? Not yet, sir. <laughs> well, just, the other thing is it's we're not- We're a couple yeah. months out from filming. We don't have Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a one and done thing too because it's like they've all got to work together. Yeah. Chris Columbus wanted Radcliffe who he'd seen in David Copperfield which was a 1999 mm. TV movie that had come out so he was on Chris Columbus's radar this child actor right place, Daniel right Radcliffe. Time. The casting director resigned in July <laughs> because quote she she said I don't they know They don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> Well, she said, I don't know what you want. Yeah. And he was like, this is what I want, pointing to Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> I want I him. Like, well, we can't get him. <laughs> Why couldn't they get him? He's a child. Yeah. Well, his, <laughs> his, well, so the thing was, his parents, like you said, he had done this David Copperfield thing. His parents were reluctant for him to sign a contract because, again, they were like, we don't, like we don't want him to be stuck like in six films. Years, or, yeah. yeah, we don't know what this is going to do. He hadn't even auditioned. He hadn't met the producer, David. Hey, well, do you want to sign away the next decade <laughs> of your life? <laughs> sign right here. Yeah. So Heyman and Steve Clovis, the writer and the producer, they're attending a play in London in July. Mm -hmm. In the lobby, Heyman meets his old friend, a literary agent, Alan Radcliffe, the father <laughs> oh of Daniel Radcliffe, sees him there, 10-year-old son. He's like, oh, this is the guy Chris has been talking oh about. <laughs> this is the kid. Would you please consider having your son audition? Yeah. And they were like, well, you know what? Actually, we were thinking of reconsidering. Like, we are going to get him in. So then they do the screen test. Boom, boom, boom. Send it to JK. They all met. They all met for tea. Columbus assures the parents, I'm going to protect your son from this process, that this is what it's going to be. Um, and I, as parents, that must have spoken volumes. I mean, and, and it's bad enough for Dumb the Dumbledore actor who, you know, it's like, I don't want to sign a wave, you know, then four movies. How many of these do yeah, I yeah. have to do if I do one? You know? Think about your uh, parent and your very young son, your 10 year old son yeah. is about to sign up to do more work than he has lived years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm just imagining what kind of confidence you would need and mm -hmm. what kind of confidant you would need to yeah. feel uh, safe mm -hmm. in that. Well, and maybe also, like I said, because the fact that David Heyman knew him as yeah. a friend yeah. that must have been, ahead of that time. That must have been huge. Rupert Grint and Emma Watson hadn't done any film acting at all. They had just been in like plays in their elementary right, and right. middle school. Yeah. They hadn't really done anything and they were picked. Just as a side note, before we get into making the actual film, I'll post a link. The New York Times that reviewed this when it came out in 2001, mm -hmm. completely hideous review, bashed it, hated it. Yeah. And there was that sentiment that it was maybe too cheesy or too simple or the acting was really wooden. But I think it was because people weren't thinking in the same way that this producer and writer and everybody else involved in the production were rolling especially. Like the child actors need to grow into who we need yes. them to be. Yes. It's the potential of them and that's the true genius yes. because that worked entirely. Like yeah. the chance of, that's why it took thousands and thousands of kids because they're like, we need these three and we need them to be tight together. We need them to have grace and steadiness in the face of their teenage years yeah. while they're also doing this. They can't be addicted to drugs. They can't be yeah. like, it's, it's more than just how do they act as an 11 year old? It's yeah. like, what do I see them and their character in real in life as well. Years. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I, it's crazy that, it, it, you know, it's, I'll post a link. There was a Los Angeles Times article and the guy was saying, uh, this was probably one of the best show business decisions in that decade. 
was picking those three people and that choice. Well, I mean, it seems thematically such a beautiful choice to me because when I look at the series as a whole, I'm really finding, I'm finding a series about legacy, lineage. We're watching kids grow up. That is at the heart of what the whole series is really about. We're watching how uh, each of our loved ones live on through us and how do we live up to that and be our own person at the same time. Mm -hmm. Well, you find all that out between about 10 years old and 20, Uh, and at least a a bit of it. You get on your journey. So you needed to be able to depict that clearly. Somehow it's the magic of filmmaking. We're going to throw these kids at the appropriate age in front of a camera and we're going to do this every other year (laughs) until it's over. And because of the nature of it, because it's happening for real, it's not movie magic. These kids are growing up on screen. (laughs) Part of that essence is inalienable Mm -hmm. from the story you're telling. It is ingrained in it. I mean, it seems like a very, it almost seems like a, it's a chance. It's such a business chance and and, and logistic Mm -hmm. mind craziness. But when you strip all that away and think of just the thematics and what their growth actually is supposed to represent and mean on screen after eight movies... And these kids who have never met each other, have never acted, are now going to be working and living together, basically, for the next decade. It's it's just mind-blowing. It's all... It's not not fake. It's not fake. It literally is magic. (laughs) So now we're over the hump. That's the first half of the story. We've got all the people. Second half, how are we going to make this story? Oh, my God. (laughs) And when we start, can we stop? (laughs) Yeah. What are we doing? The wheels are turning. So the making of the first film, Rolling read every draft of the script, sat in on the pre-production meetings, drew maps of these areas to help with the production design. Like like we said, she was in it with Clovis. She was very open about what, and she said, and blunt, about what she would (laughs) like to see or not like to see. Interesting, though, she was rarely ever on set during the shooting Hmm, because she's like at that point they bought the rights to the book they do what they they want like that's why they bought it so they can do it that's nice hey Um, that actually seems pretty appropriate yeah while you're planning i'll be right there as a tool when the camera turns on that's your job (laughs) that is literally your job and what you wanted to do i'll let you do it. i'm a writer i can do all the writing but then you've got to do everything else I, i also thought it was cool that she as we talk about adapting things she is one of these few people that's like, it's a totally different thing. I get it. It's going to be totally different. That, you're going to cut things. You're going to flip things. It's going to be this. It's going to be that. I'm here. Nobody to get has it. the grace. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, it takes a lot of uh, it takes a lot of soul searching and and some security gaining in in, yeah. in yourself to really get to that point and being like, well, the the movie is not the book. Yeah, that's absurd. The respect, <laughs> that, you know, the respect that they have for the. Also, she kind of holds the keys to the castle because she knows what's going to happen next and isn't telling anybody else. It's so weird. What an odd. And I can't imagine as a in. filmmaker putting myself in that position of being like, okay, I have signed up to tell the story to which I don't know its end. But to the level (laughs) of detail where like they had had a thing where Harry Potter's eyes are green in the book. Yes, yes. And Daniel Radcliffe's eyes are blue because they just didn't ask her. They assumed that that's a critical piece of the book. And they're like, we gave him these contacts, but they were not working out. So he couldn't wear them. So we're going to have to change it all in post-production. And they were like, Joe, can they be blue? <laughs> like, is, and she was like, yeah, that's fine, as long as they're the same as his mom. Right. Because that that's the is, important part. It's but not it was just, the color. It's does it relate thematically to to what she's trying to get across. It's that everybody yeah. says, he has his mother's eyes. Yeah. Well, the important part is that he has his mother's 
eyes. <laughs> yeah. Not that he has green eyes. But it was just so funny that it's like she had so much power and they were so diligent to be like the finest. So much grace. Detail. I mean, that she knows what she's doing to know what what about the element is actually important, not just sticking a flag and saying this is the way it has to be. And because it would have been a production nightmare if every single thing he's in every, you know, scene. Imagine in the movie. throw Daniel Radcliffe out. I doesn't have green eyes. Yeah. You can you can hear another another author doing exactly that. He doesn't have green eyes. <laughs> I've, I've heard that. I've heard something almost exactly like that. So the graciousness of her to be like, no, the important thing is that he shares his eyes with his mom, whatever color they are. <laughs> yeah. Some of the other logistics going on with this. Where are they filming? God. How are they going to do all this? Leaves Den Studios, a 200-acre studio. It was an aircraft factory during World War II wow. in England. 79-acre backlot with a 180-degree uninterrupted horizon. Wow. Perfect place. <laughs> that just means you can build entire neighborhoods, <laughs> essentially, yeah. in, the, so in the back. They shot most of it there for most of the duration. Mm -hmm. Did they leave everything standing? They left parts of it standing. So this is what's interesting. Warner Brothers rented it mm -hmm. for the first mm -hmm. part and then bought and the then whole bought thing. It after the Harry Potter films were done. So now it's a now Warner it's like Brothers a studio, yeah. and you can rent it from Warner Brothers. There is a public attraction there called The Making of Harry Potter, mm. where they have a lot of the sets. So one of the ones, I'll post a link. It's funny because if you go into Google Maps, you can see the studio, but somebody did like a Google Maps street view of Diagon Alley. Really? And so I'll post a link, but you can go into Google Maps and like you're doing the street view of Google Maps, but it's the set of that but it's in the soundstage but they just That's took incredible. a couple of the a, a couple of the sound stages and converted them and just shuffed that set and gotcha. Privet Drive is they still there in the back. Part yeah. that, this is the Harry Potter part, kind of a mu standing museum to yeah. that. I think they even have a massive uh, sign over mm -hmm. the front of Leavesden now uh, that denotes that this is where they made Harry Potter. Yeah. Come in and see the Harry Potter stuff, but it's only a, a portion of it, and yeah. it's still in a very much operational. And now it's not space. open because of coronavirus. But if you want to take <laughs> go down, take a stroll down the alley. <laughs> I'm going to check that can. out. That's really cool. Yeah, <laughs> some other logistical stuff, like we said with the kids. This is all kids. I don't know if our audience knows much about filming, but like, like yeah. they can't work yeah. twelve-hour days. They're not labor adults. laws. Child labor laws. Yeah, Learned that in the early nineteen hundreds. Right? <laughs> child labor. So they had to do four hours a day of shooting and three hours a day of schoolwork. Good lord! And okay, and learn your lines and get on set. Okay, so just based on a day. So we've got our our leads who are in scenes together. We can have them for four hours. Now, we have another scene. These are the adults. We can shoot them all day, but we only have so many material and this set ready for adults. today. Yeah. So maybe there's also another portion with other secondary characters, <laughs> these other children. So we have another four hours yeah. here on the back end of this. That must be every single day of this, a logistical... I mean, think about... I'm going to think you're going to do a wedding mm -hmm. every day yeah. for 10 years. <laughs> Crazy. You're going to, if anybody out there has ever tried to even think about planning a wedding, just the bare minimum on that, you have a minimum of 300 guests every day for 10 years. Crazy. <laughs> that's that's the yeah. logistical mess. And mm -hmm. okay, this wedding also, next week, we might be halfway across the world for one shot. Just one. <laughs> but we got to go. The other thing, which is remiss to mention, but also have to mention, a movie about kids, they're kids. They were saying... They're just goofing around, too. Like, yeah. they're still kids. They're yeah. 11 years old. They're not actors. They're not yeah. adults. They don't have a presence of mind. Like, he, I saw they were saying, like, they got the makeup people to give them fake gashes and black eyes. <laughs> uh, 
Coltrane, the guy who played Hagrid, he was like, Chris Columbus should be sainted for his patience. Aww. Like the fact that this man who is also planning a wedding every day, it's a, <laughs> a wedding made wedding. entirely of kids. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, there, put that on top of it too. <laughs> it's a child wedding. Every insane. Also, <laughs> my last little logistical thing for this movie, because the American title was different, everything that mentions the Philosopher's Stone, they had to shoot twice and say the Sorcerer's Stone. Oh, God, for the U.S. The version. Oh, my God. Though, it paid off. The highest grossing film of 2001. Wow. But the ticking clock. Destroyed. <laughs> the ticking clock comes in. Now it begins. On to the next one. Yeah. So Kids then are growing up. Books eight are months coming later. Out. <laughs> yeah. Eight months later, you're th you, obviously these, you now, you can see in front of you, the kids are growing. I mean, oh, that's when you start realizing, oh my God, the kids are not going to stop growing. <laughs> we have got to start shooting as much as we can, as fast as we can. So shooting for the Chamber of Secrets, number two, began three days after the, release. the Philosopher's Stone came out. Oh my God. God. It was released the next year in 2002, but Christopher Columbus steps down after, after the second one. one. He lasted two because one of the big reasons he was like, I haven't seen my own kids in three years. Oh, man. Oh, could you imagine? Could you imagine spending that much intimate time with other people's kids and making probably the biggest child touchstone at the time mm -hmm. and really not having contact? So he saw it firsthand like, oh, I'm missing this. Yeah. I'm missing this yeah. for that. Also, That's huge. The way that they set these things up, like we said, it started shooting three days after. Everything has to be figured out before that. So yeah. he was doing pre-production, which is getting everything During in order. getting post on the first one. Yeah. God. Getting it at the same time. And he was like, I can't yeah. do that. I can't yeah. do Azkaban while I'm doing Chamber. Right. So he was just like, I can't do it. So yeah. he made that decision in the middle of doing Chamber because he's like, I can't work on Azkaban now. Man. I'm done. So then they take a break. They take a break. Mm -hmm. Just a little one between uh, 2003. They don't put out a movie. Now, it's interesting here that uh, the next film, The Prisoner of Azkaban, this is the first one directed by somebody not Christopher Columbus. <laughs> they go with Alfonso Cuaron. Now, if you're not familiar with Alfonso Cuaron, as of late, he's done Roma, Gravity. They offer him Prisoner of Azkaban. He's at dinner with Guillermo del Toro, <laughs> as they as they do, uh, uh, and he's telling uh, del Toro that yeah, Warner Brothers, they came at me with this offer for the next Harry Potter. I mean, that's the biggest studio of the studio you can get. Why would why would they even want me for this? Mm -hmm. I, I, no way, I'm going to turn him down. Del Toro looks at him and goes, "That's one of the most pretentious things I have ever heard." <laughs> You got offered an incredible job. Why don't you just get in there and try mm -hmm. to make it the best movie you can possibly make it? And Alfonso stood up in his chair and went, thought about it for a couple of days, called Del Toro back. Yeah, you're so right. I'm going to do the movie. And the rest is history. I thought that was pretty incredible mm -hmm. that, that Alfonso Cuaron really had to sit back and, and have an ego check in the wake of his success and go, right. wait, I'm not above. I'm not above doing a Harry Potter movie. In fact, I can bring a lot. And he did bring a lot. Yeah. It is the it is definitely a change where this is the first film that's going out to people that weren't necessarily fans of the books mm -hmm. because now it's built in credibility never, yeah, and clout. He had clout. never read any of them. Mm -hmm. He hadn't even seen the other movies. They're just a big studio of pictures for kids. Why? I mean, yeah. it's not a, a again another reason of like why me? You know? Yeah. J.K. had a had a bit on Alfonso. She said he definitely understands teenage boys mm. because and this is the book where harry learns how to take care of himself like it was perfect yes, for yes, him and yes. the subject oh, matter yes i didn't even think about yeah. that. yes perfect thing with uh chris columbus 
same problem. Production of the fourth is beginning while the third isn't even done yet. Oh my god! So that's why Quaron can't do the next yeah, one. Yeah, and like, I, I mean, and no, and no brainer there. You know, he didn't exactly want to do the, that one. He mm-hmm. went ahead and did it. And I think he had a good time, but obviously, uh, you know, he wasn't going to be the mantle carrier from here on out. He wasn't going to. Yeah, I'm in till eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that just I don't think was ever on the horizon for him. So it's no surprise that he kind of shuffles out here. And keep in mind, we talk about all these people getting it and dropping it, but it's not like a presidency or something where it's like definitely handing off the torch. So, oh yeah, they're the spending credits, time with the next director. Yeah, Chris Columbus is a producer on Azkaban. Yes. So he didn't completely no. get rid of the project. No. Like they're always passing it down and saying, here's what I know, here's how to work it. I read that each director spent extensive time with the following director just to keep that uh, continuity of story going, to keep the thematics going. Well, so now we get into number four, The Goblet of Fire, which came out in 2005. Like you said, this is the growing up of the series. The books are getting bigger. Joe is like, my characters need to learn more. They need to expand outside of Hogwarts. As you grow up as a kid, you do stretch your, you know, let your wings Laced with a lot of sexual tension in this one, but I almost feel like they didn't go far enough with just sexuality in it to a degree. I I feel like they're just too blasé. We're looking at a magical boarding school. I wish there were more possibilities on that spectrum for Mm -hmm. the students there. It didn't seem like that, you know, I don't know. Yeah. But this, yeah. this whole movie goes out of its way to kind of be talking about sexuality. So mm-hmm. it's funny how it it presents it without really going there. I mean, and I guess that's the studio influence. But that was my – if mm-hmm. I have a, uh, a a bone to pick with the whole series is I wish that that part, the sexuality part of this felt mm-hmm. more I, – I, honestly, I wish there were more questioning of who yeah. I am in that sense. It feels very – it would feel more yeah. real to me. Like I said, this is the the biggest book that they've done so far. The director they got was Mike Newell, who is the first British director mm-hmm. to do this. The book is so big. I saw in an interview where he had to take the biggest pieces of it and make those kind of like the set pieces. And I think a lot of that yeah. does get lost yeah. in the film version. Just as a little tidbit about Goblet, this is the same year, 2005, that book six comes out. Half-Blood Prince. So she still hasn't finished writing them. Yeah. Nobody knows how this thing ends. Meanwhile, we're dead set in the middle of the series mm-hmm. here. And nobody knows exactly where it's going. Maybe you have a couple actors who have gotten a line dropped mm-hmm. from JK, but they're not spilling any secrets. Yeah. Uh, but it must be, as a filmmaker, really disconcerting. Yeah. I mean, you've got to be constantly working to make sure that this thing rounds itself out and feels cohesive. So now we have... Order of the Phoenix, number five, which came out in 2007. David Yates is the director, and he worked for BBC Television. Tag him in, he's in now. (laughs) BBC Television, mostly, which is odd. We realized Chris Columbus tried to do two, couldn't hang. Now we've just got three different directors. Now he's the third coming in. Yeah, he'll be the third new director. How can we make this work? He said, quote, I remember Mike Newell looking a bit of a state and Dan Radcliffe was telling me Alfonso started this like a fresh-faced romantic and then sort of ended a complete mess. So he's like, what am I getting myself into? no. God, it really, almost in a different way, like a presidency. (laughs) (laughs) But what he said, because he ends up being the person who does the last four films, he ends up doing them. So he said- He is tagged in from here on out. His work in TV helped him the fact that in TV you're doing a lot of mad overlaps. The collaborative nature of it. And yes. the overlaps in projects. He's like, yes. I was always shuffling yes. five projects and working on this thing here and For there those and everywhere. that don't know, fe- feature films and television work on a very different type of production schedule. On feature films, you really have uh, flagship leaders and there's a definite amount of 
of time in which this project will be completed. Mm-hmm. On a TV series, it is ongoing. Uh, most of them can be shot back-to-back weekly on a weekly basis, and each week has a different director. So each director <laughs> is kind of leapfrogging the other and tagging in. Mm-hmm. It only really exists in the in the TV world. So this is one of the first instances I know of, of film really trying to take that approach of how to consistently make these things mm-hmm. on top of each other and have new While you're finishing something in. up, you're already starting the other yes. thing, which is exactly the problem this has. So he's in on it to win it. But our dear friend Steve Clovis, the writer who has written <laughs> the past four, can't yes. hang. <laughs> Tell me what happens here. Yes, thank you. I he wanted just, to get here. He just got burnt out. He was like, I can't do this anymore. He just had to take so a break turned, in the middle. Yeah, he turned down number five. So number five is written by Michael Goldenberg. Wouldn't know it. Yeah. A guy they no, picked. I had no idea. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> for Warner Brothers. Doesn't do it again, but everybody's dropping like flies. Yeah. Like, I mean, and, and even to that point, Steve Cloves is like, got to take a break in the yeah. middle of it. Man, oh man. So that's what happened with Order of the Phoenix. Now we're on Half-Blood Prince 2009. And like we said, uh, Steve Clovis tags back in. He's back in for the rest of them. <laughs> he's on writing. This is the first time he's working with Yates. Uh, nice, nice, nice. Yates, I saw in an interview, said, Quote, one of the things Steve does, I don't think he writes for the characters. He writes for the actors playing the characters. Yeah, he yeah. knows their strengths. He knows their weaknesses. And then this is great. He said, and I think he even writes for me sometimes. I think he knows what I'm wow. good at. And that's a very rare quality. He knows what's on the table. And he's not just got a great ear for Hermione and Harry. He's got a good ear for Dan and Emma and me. Yeah. And I think that's a special gift. Immensely it's, special. As that's a probably why yeah. the writing is so fluid and concrete yeah. throughout because he's like, yeah. I mean, just exactly what this director intuits. He is a master writer because he's not just taking the material. It's not he's just like, him. What are, we, what are we even doing for the people that are doing it? Yeah. Which yeah. is crazy. It's um, not just him and his experiences <laughs> and what he thinks. Is neat. You know, He's very much looking at everybody and looking into everybody. And probably since that first meeting when he said, oh, Hermione is my favorite. Joe saw that in him. He's like, oh, he gets it. He I agree with people. this approach, man. As a, as a creative, I love getting everybody together and thriving off of everybody's best ideas, man. If you don't have the insecurities barring you from that, if you can uh, you really tap into the mm-hmm. other people surrounding you on a project, it's going to make it that much better if yeah. you can really communicate with them and understand what they need. Mm-hmm. We'll move on to the finality, seven and eight, part one, part two. Way back in 2008 which was the year before. (laughs) They said this was going to be done in two parts. So like I said, they're doing pre-production on one while they're finishing, you know. So they knew what they were doing and the fact that it needed to be split up. So as soon as David Yates gets on board, he's teeing up how this is going to finish off. And by this point, the the final book comes out in 2007. So now it feels like they can actually start planning Mm -hmm. for real for the first time. (laughs) Right. Okay, now we know what we can do, boys. It's also fascinating how, like we said, oh, he's taking on this dauntless thing, but it's also like everybody else is like, bah, I can't pre-produce while I'm finishing the other one. Yeah. No, no, no. He was doing two. Yeah. <laughs> he was pre-producing the last two. He's showing while up finishing. all these chumps. <laughs> <laughs> the final one. Balling out on him. And the big thing he said, he was like, it was a budget thing. Like we would have loved for all the movies to be five hours. Well, we have all these big set pieces. The last book is epic. And they were like, well, we can give you the budget if you spread it across two, because we can't give you this big of a budget for one movie, yeah. but we can make yeah. our money back if we make it two make movies. It, two. it was nice to find out that they shot it as one movie. Right, uh, yeah. I was expecting uh, that it would be just 
well, okay, we'll come back in a couple months. No, they shot it as one film and mm-hmm. then edited it apart. Um, I thought that uh, kind of staggering. And still, I mean, we're, we're starting this in 2008. Uh, that's when Iron Man comes out, the first one. <laughs> right. so, Marvel's like, just, oh, they yeah, did it. We yeah. got it. Yeah. <laughs> just to tee up some context yeah. there uh, and, so, yeah. and maybe explain maybe what we are in the middle. Yeah, Harry, are you responsible <laughs> for this madness we're in right now? Basically, yeah. Let's talk about where are they now, the afterward. Like you said, Marvel, Batman, all these other now big... I'm I'm tired of the orphan superhero <laughs> mega franchise, all right? I blame Harry all Potter, right? yeah. <laughs> He's the orphan superhero that started it all. Well, they just saw, oh, we can we can keep somebody one film after the other. Just to, to, to put in perspective everybody we've talked about, six directors of photography. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I would have, I didn't. I, that did this. Now I'm kind of mad I didn't look into the directors of <laughs> photography, but to know how cohesive this thing feels, mm. and there's still six directors of photography yeah. on this thing. Those are the people on the cameras. And yeah, they, the overall look. For those who don't know, they are in charge of everything in the lighting and the photography, the frame. Yeah. They're in charge of making sure the light is right, uh, making sure <laughs> they got the, the right camera. Right. How's this color going to work? And a million other things, but that's, that's obviously their, a million other things. But the, but the big thing that I guess was the reason for that is they don't want to repeat themselves. Usually a director of photography is looking for a unique piece of work apart? time yeah. and time again. Yes. So that's why they're like, cool, I did it. What's my next project that yeah. gives me a challenge, gives me something different? Five different editors... Four different composers. Good lord. Um, four different directors, like we said. Two different writers, which was almost one. But the one who stands alone, the production designer, really? Stuart Stuart Craig, did all. There of you them. go. <laughs> I mean, that explains a ton of it, man. Because I mean, this is that's the sets. That's <laughs> that's where we are. And so, if where we are really has this continuous tactile feel mm-hmm. that is inalienable from the from the shot because we're this is the set it's almost no brainer that that would carry yeah. through into the photography mm-hmm. that's, it's, that's great that's it's fantastic in, yeah it's interesting too the other last person coming back full circle david Heyman, the producer he's obviously also on all of these so he's the other person with the production designer yeah that stuck through yeah. it to the end speaking of producing awards that kind of thing no oscars ever won for these none not a not single a, not, Oscar. Oh my God! No, I assumed that. Yeah, the interesting. This was thing. a definitely an industry push to further the technology. You're going to see if you go back and watch these things, you're going to see VFX in a massive growth spurt through this decade. Uh, the new techniques are being uh, developed for these films. It's kind of crazy that they never garnered. I mean, at least an award. Yeah. They never got a nomination. No, they did get. Nominated. They got nominations. Yeah, okay, but they never okay. won anything. They never won. Okay, yeah, because there were other ah. just big pillar temple yeah, movies that yeah. came up every year. You know, yeah. one year they lost to Inception. One year that you know, there's ah. just. But now we're talking about what's happening now. This Fantastic Beasts movies, which we haven't covered here. That's what the two of them have come out thus far in 2016 and 2018. Yeah, the first one won because it's a period piece set in the uh, 1920s, though. So for costumes and whatnot. But it's just fascinating that it had to be a period piece yeah. <laughs> in order for them to win anything. Well, forget your own world, you know? <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about Fantastic Beasts just for a second yeah. as we wrap up. Where are these people now yeah, and yeah. what are they doing? So Steve Clovis, he is the producer on the Fantastic Beasts movie. Oh. The guy who wrote it. 
Very you know cool. who's writing them? Who? J.K. Rowling. No way. This is, these are these are the first time she's doing screenplays. So she's doing the screenplays. And he's doing the producing. Whoa, that's crazy. Yeah. That's cool. That almost makes me want to go watch him. I have not watched <laughs> him. I have no interest to really, even after having done this, I've not really even thought about it. Weird. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but now that you say that, it just to see, because I've kind of been wondered, well, at one point, why didn't they want to just tag team and be, we're co-screenwriters and we're mm-hmm. a team. It's, you know, I was wondering about that yeah. myself. So to see them almost switch roles in a way, because she's definitely more of the producerial role yeah. and, and the creative producer role on, on the series of being now like, she's well, this seen, is how it should be. Oh, yeah. this is what a movie is. Right, right. And so now she's going to be the screenwriter and he's going to he's gonna go like, but this is a movie, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's really interesting. David Heyman, where did he go? Yeah. Like you said, Alfonso Cuaron did Gravity. He produced that. Oh, man, I didn't know that. Wow, <laughs> yeah. incredible. Um, and just most recently, he was producer on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Marriage Story, oh, wow. which both got nominated incredible. for Best yeah. Picture. Oh, he had amazing 2019. Yeah. Dang. <laughs> and lastly, J.K. Rowling, like we said, she's writing the Fantastic Beast movies yeah. in terms of yeah. cinema. I just found this very week, she came out with a book, a children's book called The Ichabog, and it is a fantasy, nothing to do with Harry Potter, uh-huh. fantasy children's book. So it's being released chapter by chapter yeah. online. Yeah. I'll post a link to it. But the cool thing is eventually it will be published and all the proceeds will go to relief efforts and people will, you know, wow. in relation to the coronavirus. Oh, but man. there is an illustration competition where they give you the theme or what you they want you to draw. And if you're between the ages of seven and 11 or whatever, you can submit it and then they're going to pick what kids drawings get to be in the final book oh my gosh that's amazing so go check that out especially if you have a kid and you want him to be in a jk rowling book as part of the artwork (laughs) but that's what she's up to now wow man a kind of a sigh of relief okay yeah (laughs) i bet they have i bet they're still recovering (laughs) in a way man uh and and I mean, we'll continue it in our next part, but I, I wish there was a documentary, a docu-series <laughs> yeah. about just the, the genesis of Harry Potter. I mean, yeah. this is a 20-year story from getting him written to getting <laughs> the last movie done. And it's a massive journey and a feat that is almost unmatched. Mm-hmm. I mean, Marvel has gone crazy in the recent years, but I mean, this is this is the first time any of this stuff is really done to this scale. Yeah. And it, it has staying power. This is going to be with us. Till the earth is gone. Yeah. Like Evan uh, said, there was no, there's no video on this really. There's little snippets or featurettes or whatnot. But like I was reading Entertainment Weekly articles yeah. from 2000. Yeah, this to took, find this, this took some digging. There wasn't just a documentary we could pop on on this one. I really wish there was uh, just telling the whole story, all of it. Though. Maybe JK there will the be whole thing. Maybe point, there but... will be. Hopefully, I mean, I could see it doing incredibly well. Um, but this is just an unparalleled literary achievement. Nothing short of magic. All of the decisions that went into it, to that, that what got those elements in front of those cameras, yeah. it, it is nothing short of magic. Well, all right, guys, that's it for today. Covered the movies. Uh, we will have another part out on Harry Potter, more on uh, the legacy and impact. So that'll be inbound. Hit us up on our Instagram page, at AlliteratePod, and let us know what you are watching and reading out there. Uh, Maybe it'll be a future episode. Thank you all so much. Catch you all next week. Oh, 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 o